uh, I had to cut so much out of this message in order to be able to present it to you in the time frame I've been allocated. It is crazy how much you get from this when you dig into it. So tonight, obviously, we're speaking about the golden rule. Now, the golden rule is not something from Scripture. You'll see it as biblical headings and things like that, but it's a construct of men. It didn't actually come from God. But I think many would agree that it's not lacking that much that the term that is used is appropriate. And as I said, there's, there's enough in this verse to keep all of us busy and realistically keeping us busy for the rest of our lives if we agree to actually follow what is before us this evening. And it's one of those things um, which applies to us individually, but it also applies to us corporately. And so we should be looking for ways to actually live this out. And there's enough here to bring an end to all fights between relatives, spouses, and nations. There's enough to end all wars. Fairly appropriate when you think about the day we're celebrating today and reflecting on the millions of lives that have been lost as a result of war. And what is contained in this verse is enough to lead the world to be totally transformed from what it presently is, to a world that would be called and recognised as paradise. If this was obeyed, the world as we know it would be transformed into a place of peace and harmony. But obviously we're not there yet, hey? And the reason we aren't there is because our hearts are still in darkness As much as we try to live for Jesus, there are times when we become selfish, self-centered, bent on following our own desires, my desires, what I want. Doing something for me for a change. I don't know how many times I've heard people say that. Sin comes because we're so preoccupied with me, myself, what I want. And we know we should be living lives that are totally dependent on God. And yet if we were honest, we would admit we fall way short of that call. But you know what? If you're willing to recognize that, if you're willing to acknowledge that, it's not actually a bad thing. Those of us who are determined to follow Jesus acknowledge we fall short constantly in what this verse particularly calls us to as well. And so it drives us to God each and every day. We cry out to him for forgiveness. We acknowledge our weakness. We acknowledge our total dependence upon him. And we acknowledge the saving grace he provides for us through the cross of Jesus. And then God and God alone pulls his enabling power out upon us to live as he would have us to. All of this, and heaps more, contained in this verse tonight. Let's pray. Lord, my prayer is simple again tonight. I just, I want to hear from you, Lord. And my desire is that everyone who hears my voice here tonight hears from you as well. Father, we come for that purpose and that reason. It's not about me. It's not about singing. It's not about catching up with people after church. It's about you. Let us focus upon you, Lord, and give us those open hearts and minds to hear from you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. 
So the verse that we read this evening, I read from the NIV, and as you know, I actually love the ESV. But at the start of verse 12, in both the NIV and the ESV, is the word so. In the King James Version, it has therefore. And as I've told you many, many times, if you have a therefore or a so there, it's to call attention to what goes before. You are supposed to ask, what is that therefore? And read back above it. And so if we do that this evening, we see that what's in closest proximity to the verse that we've read is the way that God cares for us and provides for our needs, each and every one of us. There's a call for us in the midst of that to treat others with the same goodness that God treats us. And then in the midst of that too, we're called not to judge others in a hypocritical manner, but to be charitable with a view to bringing confession, repentance and restoration to that person. And with these and many other things that Jesus said during the Sermon on the Mount in mind, we can look at the verse tonight. And the first thing I want to look at is the measure of what this verse actually says. And I have to be honest, I found it difficult to find a word that expressed what I was trying to indicate here. But this is the scope of this rule, um, the broad value or extent of what is actually said. And the particular focus for the measure of the rule is, Whatever you wish others would do to you, sorry, whatever you wish that others would do to you. This is one of those verses which has been challenged by many as just a copy of other forms of religion, historical forms of religion, which they say came before Christianity. And I've got a few examples here for you. Confucius said, do not do to others what you, could not, what you would not wish done to yourself. The Apocrypha in Tobit 4.15 says, Do not do anyone what you yourself would hate. And Rabbi Halil says, What is hateful to you, do not do to anyone else. Sounds similar, hey? But there's one huge difference and something very unique about what Jesus has stated and about how he says it. It makes a huge difference to what is actually said. And the way Jesus states it is overtly positive. That may not seem like a big deal. But look again. Think about each one of these things here. Each and every one of those situations is about what you don't want to be done to you. And what Jesus goes way beyond says, sorry, what Jesus says goes way beyond that. He covers all of those things. But then he moves into a territory they don't even touch on. His call is for us to be proactive. His call is not about not doing bad things to others, but his call is about taking the initiative and doing good to others. The call is to treat people the same way we want them to treat us in each and every situation. The call is a positive call. It's an affirming action. It is Jesus calling his followers to be on the offensive by treating others as we would want to be treated. In reality, it is calling that same graciousness, kindness, integrity, respect, generosity, gentleness and love that we would want to be treated with. And what does that look like in practice? I've read so many incredible illustrations about how this should be outworked. And one of them spoke about Doing this being like the difference between someone who drives their car and doesn't break the road rules. No, I wasn't mentioning you, Pastor Darrell. But someone who drives their car and they don't break the road rules when they drive. And that's what's expected of them, yeah? 
But if someone was to outwork this verse in actually driving a car, they'd be someone who would actually pull up and help someone who had broken down. It's going over and above. It's doing the things that are not expected of them. And so it's this call to do also to them. When we submit to the call of this golden rule, it's as if we're agreeing to allow grace to work through us in each and every possible way. It's a grace that puts me at risk rather than the one that I am extending that grace to. I want you to think carefully about what I'm trying to say there. If this was like the other religions where I'm not to do to others what I don't want done to me, then I can easily comply by sitting at home on my hands. There's no action required in order to make that happen. I can just stay home. But we're called to do what we would wish others would do to us. Is a positive focus. It's a call to action, a positive action. And if I'm to obey this, then I must become active. It's a call to certainly live out what is contained here, but also, Paul says in Philippians 2, 3 and 4, to let each of us look not only to our own interests, but to the interests of others. I am to look to the interests of others because I am to consider them more significant than me. That's what it says, to consider others more significant than yourselves. It's a huge call, isn't it? It's a call to be other-centered, other-focused, instead of self-centered, self-focused and selfish. It's what set Jesus and God aside. They were other-focused, other-centered. They thought of others before themselves. That's why Jesus was able to sacrifice himself. But this is exactly what we are called to. And it's hard to find illustrations which demonstrate this, but I actually did find one which I think beautifully lays this out. And in 1968, there was a spy ship, the USS Pueblo. It was captured by the North Koreans. There were 83 survivors of that ship that were captured. Out of that 83, there were 13 of these men who were taken into a room every day and they were sat around a table in chairs. They were not permitted to move from those chairs and they had to sit upright. And after several hours, one of the North Korean officers would come in and he would beat the man in the first chair. This happened for a few days. And the sailors realised that the guy sitting in that chair would not be able to survive another beating. So the next day, they went into the room. They sat in their chairs. And then one of the sailors swapped seats with the guy who was being beaten. And again, they were there for several hours, sitting upright. When the North Korean officer came in, he beat the guy in that chair. He always beat the guy that was in that first chair. And so from that day on, these sailors just progressed around. They changed seats every day. So there was a different person in that chair. Because his friends realised that on his own, one man wouldn't be able to endure that beating. They would die. But if these sailors changed chairs each and every day, over a period of time, they would all suffer a beating. But they willingly took that beating in order to save one another. That's a work of grace. This was intended to break these men. This was intended to shatter their souls. And what it did instead was unite them. It brought them together. It built community amongst them. Because they took off what was best for me, for myself as an individual, and focused on what was best 
for the man being beaten. And of course, the greatest example of this being lived out is Jesus himself. He thought of us as his church. He loved us, gave himself for us, so that he might justify us, meaning to put us back into right relationship with God. And then he sanctified us. He, he purified us so that we could be presented to him as a beautiful, glorious bride, without spot, wrinkle or blemish. He treated me, each of us, as he calls husbands to treat their wives in the Bible, as if she, his bride, was his own flesh. Because no one ever hated his own flesh, but he nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Can you imagine the difference we would experience here in this church at SDBC? The difference in this community, in this state, in this nation and world, if whatever we wished others to do to us, we did to them. This leads us to the extent of this, of this verse. What we need to realise is the golden rule is not a substitute for the rest of Christianity. You cannot gain salvation through simply complying to this and living like it. That would leave out God, it would leave out his love, it would leave out the incredible atoning sacrifice Jesus made upon the cross. It would mean there is no repentance, no confession, no trusting, no faith in our God who so dearly loves us. So when Jesus says... This is the law and the prophets. He's calling us to live this out in our lives in such a way that it demonstrates the very grace of God in our lives. It is us allowing Jesus to live through us. It is his love and his grace overflowing from us in order to draw others to himself, to Jesus. The Old Testament law in Leviticus 19.18 says, You shall love your neighbour as yourself. This is about putting the needs of others on a level footing with my own needs. When we love like that, we fulfill the requirements of the law. Romans 13.8 says, Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. It is a constant call throughout Scripture to love others, to love our neighbours, love our enemies. And when we truly love like this, it's about giving to others and doing to them those things which would benefit them, our neighbours, our enemies, Others, everyone. And another perspective is what God intended for his church. When we are able to trust in the care we are provided for each other, in light of our relationship with Christ, then as his followers, we would never have to worry about our needs being met. If we were living as Jesus intended. Acts 2, 44 and 45 said, And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. This is huge. It's way beyond anything that I believe we would ever be able to achieve. But we can't do this type of thing on our own anyway. 
This is God's command, his will, his purpose for us. This is what he called the church too. And when we have things right with him, he will empower and equip us with everything we need in order to live for him, in order to obey him. Remember that Jesus was once asked by the religious leaders, what is the greatest commandment? I've missed one. And Jesus said, you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and prophets. Our first commandment remains unchanging regardless of what we've read tonight in Matthew. The first commandment is to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul and mind. There's no way, no way we can love our neighbors in the way God intends for us if we do not have a relationship with him. And not just any relationship, a right relationship with him. It is when we truly love him that we have this desire to live for him. And we have no other gods before him. We don't take his name in vain. We honour him on the Sabbath. Only when I love God and have a relationship with him can I begin to understand what it means to love my neighbour and to love my enemy. When my love for God is as it should be, when he becomes my Lord and I make him the very purpose of my life, then I begin to see others as God sees them. I'll see people as needy sinners as I once was. They're just like me. I will be able to acknowledge that they are not beyond the reach of our incredible God. If he saved me, then he can save them. As I pray for them, I begin to love them even when they're my enemies. That's what God did for me. So what? There's some people present here tonight who will love this verse and what it calls us to. There are people here who dearly love Jesus. They have a relationship with God and they know in their heart of hearts that although they want desperately to do what this says, they fall short again and again. But for them, they will say that they love the Lord, they love his commands, they agree with everything that has been said tonight, agree with what is written in the Word, written in the Word. And they say, yes, Lord, I acknowledge this is you and your way. I want to love people more. I want to love them like this. The mature Christian isn't satisfied with a level of self-deception which says they do their best. They're actually motivated to keep this. And so when they realize they don't, they find themselves at the foot of the cross of Christ. They find themselves confessing, repenting, that they didn't get this right. Oh, Lord, they so desperately wanted to, but they failed. And so they ask God for his wisdom. They ask God for his power. They ask God for his strength to fulfill his command in their lives. They allow God's word to speak to them in such a way that when they know they are not living it out as they should, it humbles them because they so want to honour Jesus for everything that he's done for them. 
They're awesome people. People I dearly love. People like this mentor me. People like this encourage me. But there's others here. Others who don't know Jesus. Others who are still trying to find their way. Those who are not mature. Where do you begin? How do you begin this journey? You go to the same place. We constantly come to the foot of the cross. There's no other place we should go. We should humbly submit to God. We should have this growing desire in our lives to seek His will and His purpose. And you know, in this image, I, I was just praying about this and thinking about this this afternoon, and we've got those mature Christians who know they've got to keep coming back to the cross constantly, and they're kneeling before the Lord, just asking for His wisdom and guidance daily, and then me as a new, not-so-strong believer comes stumbling in, and I fall on my knees there as well, and suddenly we're rubbing shoulders with these mature Christians. Isn't that the image of what God wants for the church, where we're side-by-side side at the cross, the mature and the immature alike, and, and then the mature can speak into our lives, they can encourage us, they can spur us on to the journey that they know, they can tell us about the pitfalls that they had and pray for us. We are called as a church to love each other. It doesn't matter where we are along that journey. We're to be united in our purpose in living for Jesus. And what better place for us as a people to begin this than united at the foot of the cross? Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For those of you who are those mature Christians, do you remember the first time you came to faith? I do. I gave my life to Jesus and I thought this was an incredible thing and I went back to my home church and I told them and a few of the old people were ticked off because I didn't become a Christian in their church. I don't understand that. And I didn't receive any mentoring. I didn't receive any discipling. I didn't get anyone help me know how to read the word. You think about what it was like when you first gave your life to Jesus. Who was around you? What was it you wanted what was it that you desired? Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. Do you remember the struggles that you faced and the questions you had? Did you ever wish that someone would come alongside that you could ask those questions to who would answer them for you? Or if they didn't have the answers, they would actually find out and come back to you. Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. You know, as we begin the Christian journey and we think we're doing well and then we mess up, we fall back into habitual sin or something happens and we stumble and fall. Did you ever wish someone to come alongside and just lift you up and say, hey, brother, let's just pray to our Lord together. I want to encourage you. It's a tough journey. You're not always going to get it right, but Jesus loves you and he welcomes you with open arms. Would have you appreciated someone coming alongside and saying that? Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. Do you remember the first times you were serving in the church? Perhaps the first time you read 
the Bible and you read the wrong passage or you stumbled over some of those wonderful words that we find in there or you sang for the first time on stage and you just botched it totally. Whatever it was we did, we just hashed it. It was really bad. Man, you guys possibly got this many. I've got like this many. But wouldn't it have been great to have someone come alongside you and say, hey, I remember that. You won't believe this, but we've all done that. Don't worry about it. You're doing a great job. I appreciate you serving the Lord the way you are. Wouldn't it be great to have someone come alongside and do that? Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. You know those days where everything just seems to be weighed against you? You don't seem to be able to make headway at all. You don't seem to be able to make any ground. You read the Bible and it's doesn't say anything to you and then you pray to God it's like there's this brass ceiling there wouldn't it be great to have someone phone you and say hey look God just laid you on my heart today and and I don't know what's going on in your life but I'm praying for you and I've got a word for you I was reading this morning God told me to give this word to you how encouraging is that I've had people do that to me and I do it for others and and I, I again Whatever you wish that others would do for you, do it also for them. This is why the church is called to be united. This is why we're called to be together. We're to build each other up in the faith. What about when you begin to ask questions? Something comes up against you and your doubts grow. And all you wanted was someone to come alongside and share a story with you about what God had said to you from Scripture share with you an incredible answer to prayer that they received, a little miracle perhaps that God had performed for them so that you can see that God is active and real and moving amongst us. Wouldn't that be a great word of encouragement? Imagine if you are a married couple and you're struggling in your marriage and you just desire someone to come alongside who says, hey, you know what? Elena walked out on me once. I dumped everything because I pursued her. My marriage was more important than anything. And yet God still uses us now. He can do the same for you. You just have to hook in. You just have to stand firm. Wouldn't it be great to have someone come alongside and do that for you? For all of us, the major call is to put yourself in the other person's shoes and ask, how would I like to be treated in that situation? If we follow this, if we put ourselves sensitively into the place of the other person and wish for them what we would wish for ourselves in that situation, we would never be mean. We would always be generous. We would never be harsh, but always understanding. We would never be cruel, but always kind. And again, I want to tell you, This is not just about individuals. This is a community affair. It involves relationships. And the community that Jesus speaks of is the church community. We are God's children. We are his family. And this points to the very heart of the Christian community God envisages. He is our father. Every Christian is our brother and sister.
I don't know about you. I've seen some families that seem dysfunctional until someone picks on one of them. And then the whole family bands together. That's where that saying comes from, blood's thicker than water. We're adopted daughters of the Most High God, sons and daughters of the one true King. We should see our fellow Christians as our brothers and sisters. And when we see that, when we believe that, it would be inconceivable for us to do anything but be loving and caring towards each other. It is God's command. Let's pray. Father God, you know I failed again and again to live this out. But I thank you that it's not a one-strike or a three-strike situation. I thank you that you wait with arms wide open, ready to welcome us back, ready to forgive. And so, Lord, I ask your forgiveness afresh for myself. I ask your forgiveness for every person gathered here and gathered at home. I ask, Lord, that you'll challenge us to be those people who live for you above all else. And that, Lord, regardless of the situation we're in, when we see others, we will want to do to them what we would want them to do for us if we were in that situation. Let us not forget this, Lord. Let us challenge each other with this. Let us talk about this as a people. And let us have some great stories to share about the great work you have done by power of Holy Spirit through us as a result. We are your children, Lord. Work amongst us through Holy Spirit, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.